Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. Yeah, that was another important thing that came up in your stream, which was that they all seem to want to rebel against um, traditional natural uh, relations. So family needs to become alternative family. Uh, male-female relationships become an alternative relationship. Society needs to adopt. So the, the idea is that the existing structures are all oppressive and the revolution must be total and everything must be overturned. And so all forms of alternative ways of living must be promoted in order to overthrow the existing order. So you can see how obviously just satanic and subversive that is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and what's, it, what, what's interesting that is that what the sixties people and the people today are saying is not new. It's exactly what these revolutionaries in the 1700s, 1800s that Tristan's talking about were saying. Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. And even these ideas that they're promoting, they're often talking about, well, this return to the natural state. They're kind of this like Rousseauian return to the past. And Weishaupt was also into the same thing. You know, they're wiping away of, right. uh, you know, the structures of culture. Everything and society. must be wiped away. Yeah. Natural, which is why you get, you know, nature boy, right? Like nature boy is all about, we got to get back to nature, y'all. We got to get back to nature. We living in Babylon, all your family, that's Babylon. You got to leave your family. You got to leave your husband. You got to leave Jediah. Jediah is Babylon, right? You got to get out of that. You got you to gotta get your new family. Put the and, white and what, people on the space boat. Gonna make the exactly. white people go into space. Yeah. Well, what, and what's the new, the new structure? Well, it's anything but traditional Christian family structure. Anything except that. And what is the new thing to be worshipped? Well, it's anything but Christ, right? Well, you can have Jesus, but Jesus is an ascended master. And you'll be an ascended master too. But you can't have the triune God. You cannot have Orthodox Christianity, right? And this, um, when you when you read like Fire in the Minds of Man, you notice... Yeah, well, some people in the chat, real quick, let me note that yeah. a lot of people are making the perceptive point that I made for a long time, which is that all of that uh, philosophy, that revolutionary philosophy is premised on the idea that there's no such things as essences or natures there's no objective metaphysical yeah. realities like natures or essences. nominalism yeah and so everything is a construct ultimately is where this worldview leads which is why it leads to postmodernism which is what terence, Mc terence mckenna says that postmodernism and the idea that we construct reality he says is magical thinking and it's the exact same idea of the solipsism mm. of these empiricists and these natural uh, of these en enlightenment empiricists and eventually these revolutionaries is that, well, all I know is empirical sense data. So there's no actual meaning to the uh, world that's out there. It's all a construct. So all we have to do is clean the slate, wipe it to go back to a blank slate. All of society can just be reset, a great reset. That's why the Illuminists uh, called it year zero in the French Revolution. It was, it was just yes. a reset of everything because they believe that everything is just a construct. So why not just reconstruct things in a, quote, fair, balanced way? And it's just idiotic. And they're all people who are mentally ill who are rebelling against reality itself. They're in rebellion against what's real, against truth, against logic, against reason. And they refuse to admit that they are bound by the principles of nature, logic, and reason. And that's why they have to rebel against it because they're impelled by a rebellious demonic force. Nailed it. You nailed it. I mean, this this is really what it is, right? And, and, and they're rebelling against... Uh, 
uh, even gender roles, right? So the St. Simonians, back in, here's 1837, right? St. Simonian feminists disrupted a speech by Robert Owen in Paris in 1837 in a manner foreshadowing later internal protests within the left against, quote, male chauvinism. The young woman who denounced the absence of women from Owen's podium was challenging the identification of radical social reform with the arid rationalism and exclusively masculine organization of Owen's principal host, Cesar Moreau, founder of the Societe uh, Society of Statistic Universal and editor of the Masonic Universe, which in, in France, l'univers maçonique. Yeah, the, so the again, Grand Orient Lodge of France uh, was the most yeah. revolutionary. Um, they wanted to have, you know, total equality amongst the sexes. And that's why the uh, Jacobins and the Illuminists were radical feminists. And so they were the first to um, get this rolling way before anybody else in the modern world was feminist. And the, uh, yeah. the, the first famous feminist is Mary Wollstonecraft, who was part of that. Um, I think she was part of the first or second revolution. I forget which one she was a part of, but she's like that the proto the feminist. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And, and then also, I mean, later on in the Russian Revolution, you also see, you know, a lot of the uh, the, the elite getting involved in the Grand Orient Lodge right. within uh, you know the aristocracy of Russia and the Grand Orient Lodge, uh, as well as the, the British Masonic Lodge, which is, you know, definitely has a different MO and a little bit of a different, slightly different, but not that different worldview to the Grand Orient Lodge. Uh, that's what the February Revolution was, uh, was directed by. The, the February Revolution was brought about by, you know, the Masonic occult. Right. Um, Grand Orient, uh, yeah. Generate, yeah, very and very enslaved to the passions aristocracy in Russia, and then it got out of hand, right? Isn't this funny? So then the, the Bolsheviks end up taking over in the October Revolution, and you know, first it was just, well, let's have a, a constitutional republic, right? We need a constitutional republic, limited powers to the monarch, and uh, and you know, power to the people, people get the power, and uh, and then it gets completely out of hand, and they end up uh, you know purging uh, most of those those initial revolutionaries from the, the February Revolution, right? Yeah, that's, that's why a lot of those revolutionaries ended up murdered. Murdered. Um, I forget what stream uh, we talked about. Marat, uh, Marat is yeah. murdered as, as not being revolutionary enough, right? I think you covered this too, and where you were talking yeah. about how All the revolutionaries them. would like look at the other revolutionaries, and if he was a little overweight, he's a bourgeoisie because he's overweight. Kill him, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, he looks well fed. He must be bourgeoisie. Yeah, kill him. I mean, yeah. even Robespierre. Robespierre ends up, you know, falling prey to the guillotine himself. So you see, the revolution is endless. It's not the revolution does not stop. They just keep revolutionizing. Well, that's what O'Brien tells Winston. He says the revolution is never ending, and it's it's a, a wheel that crushes the next the previous generation. It's like a, just a crushing wheel grinding up the previous uh, generation of revolutionaries. Yeah. Yeah, and when I uh, I, did, I did stream recently and I talked about Bonneville, uh, I talked about the characters of Bonneville, of Lenin, um, and Babouf, and um, they, they tied this in with Dostoevsky's book Demons. And Bonneville considered himself and was considered kind of like the first apostle of the revolutionary religion. And he took this uh, this revolutionary technique that Babouf, who called himself Gracchus Babouf, who was kind of this illuminist uh, revolutionary, failed revolutionary for the most part, uh, uh, he took his work and basically extended it and kind of blasted it out all throughout Europe. And his... Um, his one of the ideas that he kind of spearheaded was the unfinished revolution and the uncompleted revolution that could really never right. be completed, right? It's constant. And then I guess uh, uh, you've covered Huxley and, you know, Julian Huxley and, and Aldous Huxley really well on your channel. Final revolution, yeah. The final revolution. But really, 
Like, how do you, it's kind of like with, with Marx, Marx never really describes what the structure of his final, you know, his so-called utopian state was. He says it's supposed to wither, but how is it supposed to maintain this state? Right? <laughs> it's like, well, the, you know, the, um, uh, what is it called? The, the dictatorship of the proletariat will take care of all the counter-revolutionaries. I guess he, maybe he expects that they'll just all disappear at some point, or maybe it's that the reign of terror never ends. <laughs> it's like the reign of well, terror he never ends. Think, I, think I think he thought that um, mechanization would solve all the problems of the need for the proletariat and the workers. Okay, you can have a reign of terror by Skynet <laughs> constantly forever. Yeah, basically. Right? Well, you, I think he thought that there wouldn't be problems anymore because society would be society's problems would be solved by uh equalitarianism and mechanization so there wouldn't but be wouldn't somebody what if somebody has false consciousness which is right false consciousness was whenever somebody when a worker does not realize that uh that they need to be a revolutionary like when they when they don't identify with the revolution you know i guess they call it false consciousness so what if somebody just you know gets suddenly false consciousness according to marx i guess they would just have well, there wouldn't be workers guy. anymore because you don't have the need for the proletariat anymore. So people can okay. s- supposedly just be living free. You, know, you don't need these things anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's silly, but that's and and the way you get there is the terror campaign, I guess, until eventually. Well, there was, just- yeah, there's so there's going to be the phases uh, of big state uh, communism, and then Marx thought that would eventually go away. And then you would get the libertarian phase. So, but, I mean, but how the transition works, it's like, okay, well, there's no reason. It's like, who knows? just magically one day it It'll all works just happen. out. Well, he <laughs> thought it was like this sort of process of history. Like, because yeah. the Middle Ages and feudalism gave way to capitalism, the next phase would be big state communism. And then the final phase would be full, true equalitarian libertarian worldview which is weird because when he's preaching to these people they're kind of already in this industrial capitalist state right like these he's telling you know he's the british are are there russia wasn't yet an industrial capitalist state uh but i guess marx at one point actually did concede that well you know maybe the uh maybe the um the peasantry could end up becoming kind of like the the dictatorship of the proletariat skipping the capitalist stage in russia he was open to that apparently but like He's basically telling everybody, you know, it's like you coming out right now. Like it's kind of the same thing as Elon Musk and these people who are like, yeah, we're just going to have AI. Everything's going to be automated, fully automated luxury communism. But it's like, well, how do we get there? Well, don't worry about that. But it's just going to be this natural. It'll just happen because like people will awaken and they'll figure it out and they'll get woke and then everybody will be equal and everybody will share. I mean, that's how stupid they are when they think about this stuff. And then, but historically, it's really, it's like, okay, they get woke and then there's a reign of terror that seems to just be ever escalating on, and, and until the human will is, is crushed. And well, it's, um, there's a weird uh, essay by Jefferson where he seemed to actually agree with the Jacobins. And so mm-hmm. Jefferson has this essay where he says uh, a violent bloodshed revolution is uh, necessary in every generation. So he actually... I mean, I don't, I mean, he seems to have actually been a full on Jacobin. I mean, I don't know, but yeah. I mean, Jefferson seemed to uh, argue that like, how will this occur? We'll, we'll have a giant like guillotine beheading period. That'll, that's how it will Yeah. Well, they, the, the tree of liberty must be uh, watered with the blood of patriots constantly. Yeah. But there's another quote that he has, a famous quote that he says that uh, a violent, bloody revolution is a good thing at least once a generation or something like that. It's some quote like that. I don't know if you caught, I did, I forget which stream it was I did recently, 
I don't know if you, obviously you're required to listen to, you know, the 20 hours of streams that I've done in the last few weeks, but um, there was something from Jefferson. There's actually a letter where he's kind of praising Vyshop's group. And yeah, saying, that's, that's part of it. And then there's, I'm aware yeah. of that. And then there's an essay he wrote too. I could get it. It's in the, it's in a liberalism and his critics. Cool. Welcome back to Freedoms Rising today on this July 11th, 2022, Monday, July 11th, and it's part seven of falling into the movement traps and part 23 of the Freedoms Rising podcast. Thank you for participating in the rise of freedom and what we've been covering recently in Freedoms Rising was the struggle for freedom a represent, representation of the original slides that I'd put together and going over those in an extended format and going over more of the psychological as, aspects of my, why people might really not want freedom and why there might be a, a politics of voluntary servitude, to put it in an Etienne de la Boite way. Uh, but then we're going to shift gears and we're not going to just focus on that psychological component that might be holding us back as individuals or, you know, as a collective in the group, holding us back as a society towards a distancing from freedom and more of a mutual master-slave relationship. Uh, we'll be moving away from that and getting into more of what Jay and Tristan were talking about there. That was Jay Dyer and Tristan Haggard that we opened up with, with their, uh, an excerpt from a live stream they did a few days back called, I'm just refreshing to see how many days back that was. And what you see with like with soups, uh, that was uh, July 7th, 2022. And it was called cults, new age gurus, transformational festivals and female messiahs. So, Lots of lots uh, of content there, but specifically, you know, the never-ending revolutions and what they were getting into there. And I have here uh, from the Atlantic Online, the Tree of Liberty letter from Thomas Jefferson to William Smith. Not exactly the one that Jay was talking about going to grab there, but uh, the online edition here and part of what that, the Tree of Liberty, you know, quote that Tristan was talking about there says... We'll start, you know, about three quarters of the way down the article. It says, there has been one rebellion that comes to one rebellion in a century and a half for each state. What country before ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if the rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set the right as to facts, pardon, and pacify them. What signifies a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is natural manure. Our convention has to be much impressed by the insurrection of Massachusetts, and in the spur of the moment they are setting up a kite to keep a hen yard in order. And 
it goes on. There's not too much more to the to the letter there, but he's talking about the Constitution and uh, that having a ratif- rectified new Constitution accepted. But yeah, anyway, so, you know, Thomas Jefferson saying there that, you know, rebellions and revolutions and revolutionaries are just part of, you know, how, how it, how things function. And, and they were talking about, you know, Tristan and Jay there, that never ending vicious wheel of revolution that we're going to start to uncover here more in the Freedoms Rising series, how that might be manipulated. We got into also James H. Billington's work, The Fire in the Minds of Men. Uh, Fire in the Minds of Men, of course, a really massive work. I mean, I've, I've not read through the whole book. I'm referencing aspects of it. And we're going to get back more into that introduction that we were reading. And, you know, from what they, you know, Tristan even brought it up a few times there. I think in the next episode, we're going to have some clips referencing Fire in the Minds of Men. And it seems to be a book that can have many angles and depending on the interpreter of the book and how it's being read, or maybe the time in your life when you're reading it, or a lot of this stuff, you know, is getting... It gets it gets more complex than we've started out Freedoms Rising, and that's why we started out Freedom or sorry, the Falling into the Movement Trap series slower, and just started out with some psychological aspects. And we need to dig deeper, though. We need to we need to get more into the revolutionary faith. And of course, James H. Billington wasn't just some guy; he was a historian at the Library of Congress. So he he obviously had a, a much larger and in depth and accurate perspective on a lot of these things that were put down into that book. So we'll get back to that. We'll be picking that back up from where we left off and also referencing a few things from that book today as well. And in the Freedoms Rising series, we've been covering, you know, the rise of freedom and we've been covering, is that really happening? Are we seeing a mass awakening? Are we seeing a shift towards a more free society? Or are we just holding utopian ideals and are we, are we caught up in revolutions ourselves? Are we falling into movement traps? Are we holding on to a utopian vision that is blurring our vision and, you know, causing us to fall into the movement traps? And, you know, we're still in the bio-sci war. We're, we're still in the, the psychological operation of the COVID-19, the pandemic and the biological assault on the world from the gain-of-function weaponized bioweapons and the gene therapy, uh, highly experimental and novel gene therapy drugs that are being used in this pandemic experimentally on the people. And that's all part of the bio-sci war, and we can see... Also, the, if we look at the real fact of the matter of the situation is that freedoms rising might be occurring in pockets and there might be, you know, small groups of people that are participating in the rise of freedom. But then we also have the opposite of that. We have the Great Reset. We have the 
not just that it's a great reset, but that's a great marketing term. You know, whoever came up with this marketing term, these guys have some really good copywriters apparently up there at the World Economic Forum. You know, so that we also have to deal with the fact that there's uh, philosophies and worldviews and agendas going on that are being carried out that are antithetical to, you know, the the ideas encapsulated in something like the Declaration of Independence or that you have the right to, that your rights are endowed by a creator, a higher power, and that also, you know, you have, you own your own body, you you have sovereignty over your own mind and body. And I think in a really distilled down essence of what the overall arching enemy to that would be is that you don't and that there aren't rights inherited by man and it's a scientific dictatorship there's the cult of scientism that is the ultimate god there isn't an endowed you know there's not create a creator that has endowed your rights to you you don't have inherent rights your rights are what you know the scientific dictatorship has come up with as the best thing for the group for the whole, for the overall whole the pragmatism of protecting the group uh, instead of the individual's rights. And so that might not be for the elite. I mean, the central planners will definitely still be able to decide. But as far as for the global masses, the, whatever the Fauci or the that scientific dictator at the time commands from on high will be the law of the land. And, you know, your rights won't even be a thing. It won't even be a thing to deal with if we if they have their way. There's not a thing called the Constitution or anything like that that would get in the way. And, uh, you know, when you start to look at the revolutions against that, like, let's say something like Black Lives Matter or Antifa or things that would say the Constitution is just racist and it's just a bunch of racist white men. Now, I'm I'm not a pro-constitutionalist, but as far as, you know, the geopolitical aspects of all this and how we have anything standing in the way of what I was just talking about in this sort of dystopia of the brave new worldian, you know, basically like techno-communist agenda would be using the techniques uh, alluded to in the opening we talked about in Billington's Fire in the Minds of Men to, you know, use the uh, occult inside hidden hands that are actually fomenting these revolutions for larger agendas and, you know, galvanizing the youth into these uh, fervors and sort of almost like a religious fervor, but more, you know, that fire in the minds of men to uprise against the government overthrow, this or that aspect of the society. And it might seem grassroots and even uh, sort of just something of the time happening, but then you look at the larger agendas unfolding or the larger agendas at play and most of us aren't even aware or can't see those and so that's what we need to we need to understand utopianism thinking and then we also need to understand the other aspects of how revolutions are controlled manipulated and thwarted and also infiltrated and designed in a lot of ways to really just prop up and hold up the powers that be and continue their domination and control, not necessarily the, you know, Pollyanna side or the the side of it that's that, that it's all good and it's all for good purposes. And what Tristan and what we'll be talking about here with utopian utopianism coming up here in a little bit, we're going to be referring to some works here that I have 
on my desk, but that the, you know, people will justify, the ends justify the means type things. These, you know, the violent uprisings and beheadings or burning down of cities or burning down of private property here in America. We're going to have probably a lot of that this summer, right? As we head into the height of the summer here, we'll have, uh, you know, the people who think that it's okay to go around and destroying public property or private property, businesses, things like that, even just mom and pop businesses. And doing that in the name of, you know, their, first of all, just having their voices heard and making sure that they're practicing, you know, what they think is their rights to cause violence and chaos that or even even to do a, a January 6th like insurrection type I know uh you know I'm not I'm using their language but storming the capital and all this you know people get can get riled up and then suddenly the ends justifies the means and the government isn't at the buildings anyway like I don't think they really care if you take over the buildings and someone shits on Nancy Pelosi's desk I mean you know obviously <laughs> That's maybe taking it a little bit too far. No, I mean, not not for nothing, but I mean, we are sort of at war in a lot of ways with entities in the government where we're under physical attack, physical assault from these people. And, you know, the, 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 the COVID-19 narrative is an attack and an assault in a cyber way, but then also a physical way as well. Uh, against the people those types of things are the fluorides in the water right or you know whatever they're spraying on us and stuff like that there's already physical war so it's just perception management on how is you know how the plebs react by pulling off something i'm not saying that oh we should go storm the capital i think that's ridiculous i think what went on there was a ridiculous event but also there was you know the the psychological components that get people to do things like that, that would cause somebody to go and actually think that they're storming the Capitol to take over the government or something like that. Like the QAnon effects definitely shouldn't ignore all that. And we should, we should be looking at that stuff as problematic, right? Something we need to look at. And let's see. Uh, so we read that from Jefferson. Now let's get into the definition of utopia and, an infogalactic take, and then we have some more material to go through in that direction here. Uh, a utopia, according to Infogalactic here, uh, is a community or society possessing highly desirable or near-perfect qualities. The word was coined by Sir Thomas More in Greek for his 1516 book Utopia in Latin, describing a fictional island society in the Atlantic Ocean. The term has been used to describe both intentional communities that attempted to create an ideal society and imagined societies portrayed in fiction. It has spawned other concepts of prominently dystopia. Oh, sorry, prominently dystopia. So dystopia coming from the opposite of utopia or some sort of flawed utopia, which is there any such real thing as a utopia or is it no place? And the word comes from back to the infogalactic word here or article. The word comes from Greek, not and place. 
I'm not going to say it's like OU and some other word in Greek and means no place. So it's strictly described by a non-existent society, described by considerable detail. However, in standard usage, the word's meaning has narrowed and now usually describes a non-existent society that is intended to be viewed as considerably better than contemporary society. Utopia, derived from Greek good or well, and place means good place, another take on the word. It's actually E-U-T-O-P-I-A is a good place, or strictly speaking, the correct term to describe a positive utopia in English. Etopia and utopia are homophonous, which may have given rise to the change in meaning. Okay, so, you know, they're pronounced the same. Uh, Varieties. Chronologically, the first recorded utopian proposal is Plato's Republic, part conversation, part fictional depiction, and part policy proposal. It proposes a categorization of citizens into a rigid class structure of gold, golden, silver, bronze, and iron socioeconomic classes. The golden citizens are trained in rigorous 50... Okay, so it goes on to describe Plato's Republic. Um, during And then skipping down a little. During the 16th century, Thomas More's book Utopia proposed the ideal society of the same name. Some readers, including utopian socialists, have chosen to accept this imaginary society as a, the realistic blueprint for a working nation, while others have postulated that Moore's intended nothing of the sort. Some maintained the position that Moore's utopia functions only on the level of satire, a work intended to reveal more about England, about the England of his time than about an idealistic society. Anyway, so, you know, getting into the working definitions and making sure we're understanding utopia, utopianism, to move on with that and to get into today's episode, which will probably take us through to the end of the episode, and then tomorrow we'll come back and we'll be getting deeper as we go through this week. This week's going to take a shift into some topics that are definitely darker, and or not darker, but deeper and larger than the way we've been ramping up and sort of easing up to this topic and rolling through the movement traps, we're going to be getting into a lot more broader manipulation of movements, like I said, and uh, the hidden hands of these things and the geopolitical aspects of it. And also, you know, still also at the same time, keeping it somewhat focused on the psychological components of the individuals in these movements, the revolutionaries themselves, not just individual figures, but patterns and themes that we see throughout revolutionary movements. And the idea of doing this, just again, is to go back and make sure, speaking to the youth, speaking to others who might not have thought about these things, and not like accusing people that I know, or accusing myself, or accusing people around us of being a part of these movements that we're specifically talking about here. But also, you know, you have to self-evaluate to see how much of your thinking might be utopian or how much of your thinking is also 
being manipulated by these agendas that go on to foment revolution, to keep the revolution going, the endless revolution towards this sort of utopian ideal, and how much of our thinking as a culture relates to this, how much of the thinking in America relates to this sort of, you know, equality, liberty, and, you know, or, uh, what was I said, diversity, inclusivity, right? These are some of the words now with the, the stakeholder capitalism and and uh, how Klaus has his uh, his language now is this like inclusivity, you know, where the stakeholders will decide who's included. And so if he penetrates the cabinets, the sort of weird language, right, that he's using about how the young global leaders, they... So if he penetrates the cabinets, they're fomenting their own Great Reset Revolution, right? That's another movement trap that we're all falling into, really. And in a lot of the cases, it's our ignorance of that. And there's an article that I need to get into that we're going to be getting into hopefully this week that's going to go into a lot more of the connection of, you know, cybernetics, eugenics, the Club of Rome, the World Economic Forum, and things like that. But uh, just a little foreshadowing of where we're starting here with this sort of next chapter into falling into the movement traps, part seven, and getting into the idea of utopia. Now, the story of nowhere is Daniel McCarthy's book that he wrote a few years back, and the story of nowhere.com, and you, if you recall, no place or nowhere is a utopia, as we discovered in the discovering more about the etymology. So that's now, and and just to interject real quick, the flip side of that could be that a utopia being no place is, if you're talking about legal terms, then that might be a good thing. Not having a artificial name, not having the flattering title and not being governed legally would be nowhere. It's untouchable, right? Not something that the government can, uh, not regulate, that's not the right word, but it's not in their world. It's not in that fictional world. It's not in the matrix of the legal matrix. Could be no place then, right? Nowhere, because a place has, is defined or a person is defined uh, legally. And there are definitely benefits to the corporate legal fiction, to limited liability, to insurance and things like this, and protecting your assets through limited liability, there are good things that have come about, you could claim, I mean, I'm sure there's anti-arguments to this. But anyway, we don't want to go too far off in that direction. The idea of utopia in the story of nowhere, we're going to be exploring utopianism. And that's what Daniel does in his book. And you can get the book, but you can also enjoy a lot of the multimedia that Daniel's put out in podcast format having wonderful guests on to discuss the story of nowhere book and let's see i'm just going through his website right now and also seeing if there's an audiobook version available i think he was talking about that yeah i see an audiobook here i see an ebook i met daniel mccarthy in the autonomy richard groves autonomy course and if you go back, you know, you'll you'll have heard me and seen me working closer with autonomy and uh, the autonomy 
Unlimited group and Grand Theft World a year or so back, and that's where I met Daniel McCarthy. Really awesome dude, really good individual, uh, younger guy, but really smart and has a very good outlook and outtake on things and has the ability to then turn around and put that into work, his understandings, and he did a wonderful job with this book. I got it as soon as he came out with this first edition. I have it in paperback form, but it looks like he now has it on SoundCloud, the audiobook. So let's see. I mean, I think it's essentially you can just go listen to it. I don't know if you have to pay. So the story of nowhere. Here, let's see. I'm playing Utopia it right now. And society by Daniel McCarthy. For Martin. First edition, written, printed, and read in 2020 by Daniel McCarthy of Cleveland. For more information and for digital and printed versions of this book. And for access to the Story of Nowhere podcast, please visit www.storyofnowhere.com. Acknowledgements. Okay, so... I would like to thank everybody who has made this project possible for helping me work through the... I didn't realize until just now that there was an audiobook version available, which is pretty cool. And I think what we'll do is we'll have some assistance from Daniel today by reading in the prologue into the podcast here. I just decided to do that. I was going to read through the prologue and we'll see how long that takes. We'll we'll allow Daniel to open up the book in the way that he did in the audiobook recording. So instead of cutting ahead a little, which would I which is what I had planned last night when I was going through and planning this out. Now, it's a little quiet. I wonder if I... I mean, I'll fix that in post-production, but I don't want it to sound, like, fixed. I want it to sound good, but I'm not sure why that SoundCloud app was so quiet. And again, of course, doing it live here, folks, if I would have had this prepared, I would have already downloaded it, cut out the section I want to do, and add it in. But instead, what we'll do is we'll play that out, and then... That's what I was going to basically do is read through that today and get through to a good stopping point and then go into more of some of the points from Fire in the Minds of Men in tomorrow's episode and getting into the invention of cybernetics. We're going to, if you remember from page 231, or sorry, from the opening of James H. Billington's book, he talked about the uh, beginnings of the words cybernetics and intelligentsia, and we kind of just skipped over that, right? It said, uh, going back to the revolutionaries, also, this is from page seven of the book, James H. Billington's book, it says, revolutionaries also originated other key phrases used by non-revolutionary social theorists in our own century, cybernetics and intelligentsia, even speculation about the two, the year 2000 began in the futurology of the 1960s, but with dramatic work written by the 1780s by the same figures who invented the word communist. So cybernetic systems is something we need to understand more about. And skipping down to page 231 in that book, it says, In 1843, B.F. Trentkowski invented the word cybernetics, to describe the new form of rational social technology which he believed would transform the human condition. In his neglected work, 
the relationship of philosophy to cybernetics, or the art of the ruling nations, has also invented the world word intelligentsia. In a passage challenging the leadership of the nationalist poet Adam Mikowskiewicz, Trinskowski called him out of touch with, quote, the new generation and the new spirit, unquote. Trinskowski had been educated in Germany, and he published his treatise on in Pan Poznan, where the Prussian censorship was somewhat more liberal than the Austrian or Russian-occupied parts of Poland. The following year, in the same city, the term progressive intelligentsia was introduced in a periodical edited by Karol Lebelt, and Polish Hegelian who had been educated in Berlin and politicized in Paris. In his Love of the Fatherland, written in the same 1844, Lebelt described the intelligentsia as all those who have having carefully and broadly obtained an education in higher schools and institutes stand at the head of the nations as scholars, officials, teachers, clergymen, industrialists, in some, all those who lead it because of their higher enlightenment. Oh yes, the central group of planners, right? That are just so much more enlightened and able to run these cybernetic systems to control the masses and put them in cybernetic loops. We're creating our own little cybernetic loop here with Freedoms Rising and our 24-7 live stream <laughs> and our ability to get up and get this episode out on the days that we have planned. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. So the cybernetic systems and cybernetic theory and the Macy conferences and understanding how that connects into some of the modern technocratic, the technocracy rising, right? It's not technocracy rising, Patrick, it's freedoms rising. Of course, uh, referring to Patrick Wood's work, technocracy rising, and, uh, you know, that's definitely another key component of this all, too, is technocracy. So, that being said, tomorrow is where we'll pick up with, with some more of that information and get deeper into that and some other clips that I had planned for that. Today, we're going to let Daniel take us through uh, through the prologue of his book. But first, skipping ahead... A little, he also referred to on page 102 of his book, uh, the Cabernetes, the, the old uh, Cabernetes, he, uh, which he had, that was the original word that I think cybernetics is derived from, right, is um, the Greek word Cabernetes, and on page 102, he says, he had chosen, talking about uh, Wiener's brainchild, he had come, he had chosen to name it Cybernetics after Cybernetes, Plato's philosopher kings, the, hel the helmsman of the ship and state. As we have seen, the word passed through the Latin language to become the word governor. Cybernetics, which Wiener defined as the scientific study, and he's talking about Norbert Wiener, right? The scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine. 
was to be the governing principle of all life, mechanical, individual, and society. This new science completely changed the game. Machines were made into bona fide problem solvers, and with that, the computing revolution took off in the 1960s. So, anyway, so he goes on in to talk about the computer revolution there and how that's connected in with cybernetic theory. Square. Okay, so just wanted to mention that as well. But again, I can save some of my voice today and allow us to go back to the story of nowhere audiobook version from Daniel McCarthy that I'll just allow to play through and listen in with you guys on this journey as we wrap up my part today for Freedom's Rising, uh, episode number 23. We want to thank you guys for listening and thank you for participating in this next leg of the journey as we go through the series of the falling into the movement traps and take it further than we did before and not necessarily focusing on just you know, the movements of, uh, let's say, anarchism or voluntarism or libertarianism, even, uh, you know, but getting more into where does like communism, where does socialism, where do these things come from? What are some of the origins of these ideas? And how do we find ourselves today? What, what sort of the techno-communist system, as we've been referring to it as today, uh, relate to some of these ideas of and the revolutionary faith and also fall, the movements that are fomented from the top down or manipulated and you know how, how they control and drive the youth into these movements in order to end up really just gaining them more power and control and thank you again so we'll get into that uh, the story of nowhere and we'll check back here with you tomorrow again on freedoms rising and uh We'll check out the show notes and the links if you want to find out the full audiobook that you can continue listening to in the show notes. Talk to you guys tomorrow. Thanks. Earlier, rougher versions of this book, providing me with support and criticism, and for helping me with the tedious logistics. Thank you to Alice, Deirdre, Ferdinand, Philip, Chris, Hetty Marie, Ludger, Tony, and Kara. If it weren't for the help along the way, this book would be nothing more than a collection of jumbled notes. For motivating me to write this in the first place, I thank Agnieszka, and for not only inspiring me to get other people to read it, but for teaching me how to get my work out into the world. Thank you to Rich and Lisa. I hope for this book to be a testament to autonomy. For giving me a chance to present my ideas to a wider audience, and for helping me develop my voice as a podcaster, thank you to Brett and Kevin. In Pursuit of Utopia, has made this daunting project bearable. Introduction Prelude From Eden to Kingdom Come, from Callipolis to the Universal Church, from Robespierre to Woodrow Wilson, from the promises of progress to the information age, humankind has sought the perfect society. Most people tend to view the social and political catastrophes of the past as a series of loosely connected accidents. Others see connections everywhere and in everything. These are the conspiracy theorists who so frighten the moderate public. In this book, I suggest that there is, in fact, a strong connection between apparently disparate historical philosophies and societies. Yet my argument is not that a single, monolithic group of people has been secretly and nefariously manipulating events on a global scale. Instead, I contend that the thread binding so many of history's man-made tragedies is a corrupted belief.
Simply, it is the belief that an improved or even perfect society can and should be attained by violent, deceptive, and oppressive means. In other words, humanity has long had a serious problem with utopianism. The book you are hearing now is, for all intents and purposes, an introduction to the subject of utopianism. By highlighting a handful of utopian constructs, some merely imagined and others actually attempted, we will here lay the groundwork for a much larger, far more detailed examination of the topic coming in the form of a podcast, the Story of Nowhere podcast. I have chosen this route because a book is tangible and unchanging. It serves as a handy encapsulation of my work at this moment that can be easily referenced and passed around. Conversely, a podcast provides a space for ideas to evolve. It allows for long, varied discussions that might seem out of place in a book, and there are virtually no limits to a podcaster's creative freedom. A book is a one-off. Podcasts can go on forever. Being an introduction to a deeper project, this book is, by necessity, not a catalog of what I consider to be utopian ideologies. Chapter 1 begins in the ancient world, and from there we sprint right up to the modern day in the span of just seven chapters. In such a space, this story simply could not be exhaustive. Instead, my intention is to point out a pattern. Once you've listened to this book, I'm sure you'll have no trouble thinking of philosophies and societies that could have been, but were not, included herein. I hope this turns out to be the case, as it will mean I have succeeded in conveying the pattern of utopian thought. If I can impart enough to get the reader to call out utopian schemes on his own, I will be satisfied. A point must be made about nuance. The world is anything but monotonous. History and philosophy are messy, and hardly anything is ever black or white. As you'll soon discover, I find such binary thinking tedious and totalitarian, unrealistic and utopian in its own right. So, though the chapters dealing with historical periods are written with an air of criticism, I have tried to make appropriate concessions to the figures and philosophies I am so skeptical of. Again, we are here observing the pattern of utopianism, which is only one aspect of that most complex of complexities, human society. A definitive treatment of any period or doctrine is well beyond the scope of this book, or any book, really. I am of the opinion that the only way to glean a genuine understanding of a philosophy is to read the works of the original thinkers themselves. Nobody can do this for you and I therefore exhort all who derive even the slightest value from what I have to say to spend as much time in the bibliography as in the main text. Going to the source of information is the beginning of true education. To paraphrase Mortimer Adler, if one wishes to know Plato, one must wrestle Plato. And if one wishes to wrestle Plato, one must read Plato. The setting of this book must also be addressed. Save for a brief section on Hinduism and a quick mention of authoritarian China, Western civilization is our focus here. This is not because I believe only the West is deserving of criticism, nor is it because I think that the West is the only civilization worth talking about. I happen to hold neither of these views. See the above point on nuance. We are looking at the West for two simple reasons. First, it's where I'm from and what I'm most familiar with. Second, 
Given that I live in America and this book is in English, most of my audience is likely to be of the West as well. If I were to just point out the utopian ravings of those people over there, my Western audience would not be challenged to engage in any meaningful reflection. If I want people to begin to identify inklings of utopian thought in their own heads, my tale must stay close to home. Now that the scope of this book has been addressed, let us discuss its purpose and then define the term in question, utopia. Prologue This book begins with two fundamental questions. First, why have masses of people historically allowed, and even supported, their rulers' most horrific actions? Second, what might individuals do to counter this disturbing habit? These are big questions, and each will no doubt have multiple answers. Here in the introduction, I present just one answer to the first question. Though I say this may not be the only answer, it is a very critical one, deserving of considerable attention. The bulk of this book is devoted to explaining and exploring that answer in more detail. The second question, the all-important, so-what-can-we-do-about-it question, is then thoroughly addressed in the concluding portion of the book. We cannot discuss potential solutions before the problem is clearly articulated. In a word, my answer for why people have cheered their rulers on, even as they lie, murder, and steal, is utopianism. For the purposes of this book, that term refers to the inherently and internally contradictory belief that a theoretical vision of an ideal society based on ideological assumptions about human nature can justifiably be implemented by way of deception and or violence. If this working definition seems to be working a little too hard, fear not. For the sake of clarity and specificity, it will shortly be broken down point by point. The pursuit of a superior or even perfect society has revealed the darkest corners of our species' psyche. There is a certain romance in the idea that the greatest evil is permissible when committed in the name of the highest good. In the body of this text, we will examine a handful of specific cases wherein deluded authorities believed they and they alone possessed the power to accelerate the progress to perfection. Worse, many have believed that it was their duty to do so at any cost. All too often, the common folk, desiring better lives for themselves and their children, fall for their leader's special pleading. In the end, it is the people who pay the price, and the perfect society never comes. If this is so, and I suggest that a quick glance at history, even just the last hundred years, shows it to be, then utopianism is of practical concern to everybody. Now, before you toss this book across the room, let me make it perfectly clear that this is not a call to get involved in the political process. In fact, my message is much the opposite. The worst, most destructive events in human history have been initiated and facilitated by the political process in its various forms. Even if engaging with it might at times provide tangible though temporary benefits, a society that leans too heavily on the process will soon find itself in a world of trouble. This is because the more powerful a central system becomes, the more individuals will be forced to rely on it. States promise their people a land of plenty, a utopia, where everything is provided. The system's existence is thus justified indefinitely, so long as people buy the lie. 
The dependence of the masses is the lifeblood of elites everywhere. Only by acting outside the realm of politics can we regain our independence and avert the catastrophes that utopian promises so often lead to. As we shall see, ruling classes, be they inspired, appointed, or elected, are not conducive to life or liberty. There will be much more on this later when I take on big question number two. We will get there in due time. To talk about what can be done in the future, we must first look at what has happened in the past. Before we begin our history of utopia, however, it is necessary to articulate exactly what the term means as used in this book. We must start where all logical discourse must start. We must define our terms. Defining Utopia Utopia is derived from the Greek words ua and topos, which, when combined, mean no place or nowhere. Utopia means nowhere. These days, the word is typically used to refer, usually negatively, to political plans that promise more than they can deliver. Pipe dream, idealistic, too good to be true, these all might be associated with the modern notion of utopia. Failed historical attempts at positive, widespread, fundamental reform are retrospectively dubbed utopian when examined today. Modern political platforms are attacked for being utopian. Of course, the accusations are always ignored or denied. Then there is the utopian genre of literature, which is often set a comfortable way off into the future, presumably so the author doesn't have to live long enough to see just how wrong she got it. In any case, the Oxford English Dictionary seems to have pretty well nailed down what people mean by utopia. Quote, a place, state, or condition ideally perfect in respect of politics, laws, customs, and conditions. Unquote. An even simpler and more intuitive definition is provided by the online dictionary Lexico, also out of Oxford. Quote, an imagined place or state of things in which everything is perfect. Unquote. For the purposes of this book, however, we will need to go beyond general, intuitive definitions, even if they are acceptable to Oxford. Earlier in this recording, I put forth a working definition of utopia. We will now break that definition down point by point. First of all, utopia is a theoretical vision of an ideal society. This encapsulates the entirety of Lexico's definition. As we all know, Perfection is a creature of the mind. Even still, it is impossible to imagine something perfect with any real clarity. And yet, as we shall see, certain people have come to believe that they've not only conceived of perfection clearly, but that it can be applied to the real world. These are the people I refer to as utopian, those who imagine they can get away with imposing their ideal social systems on actual society. For instance, take the former Soviet Union where it was supposed that an egalitarian worker's paradise was the best social model, and that such a society could be achieved via the political process. Consider also Cecil Rhodes, the colossus of the British Empire. He was so enamored with his native English culture that he thought the whole world would be better off under the Union Jack. He believed that the perfect world would be an English world. Moreover, he believed that this ideal could and should be realized. Second, utopia is based on ideological assumptions about human nature. This is necessitated by the first point. 
If one believes he has conceived of an ideal society and that it is implementable, it follows that he must believe particular things about human action and interaction. One such assumption is that the utopian has figured out what is best for everybody else. Utopians believe they have cracked the code to human conduct, whether or not others recognize or agree with their discovery. The Soviets knew that communism would unify and empower the masses. Rhodes and the imperialists knew that the more territory Britain possessed, the better off the world would be. Another common utopian assumption is that human nature is completely malleable. This is the belief that people are entirely the products of their society, that there are no intrinsic realities to people at all. If the people are corrupt, it is because the society is corrupt. This opens the door to the notion that if the ideal society is realized, people will simply be molded to that system and fall into place. In other words, if the forces that guide society are captured and directed properly, humankind can be perfected. This was the philosophy behind the Soviet Union. State schools, state media, and state propaganda ensured, theoretically, that everybody had been conditioned adequately. For problem cases, there were re-education camps. For extreme nonconformists, there awaited permanent removal from society. Soviet socialism could not have functioned without the underlying belief that individuals are almost entirely formed and reformed by collective entities. One more important utopian assumption to acknowledge is the opposite, that human nature is fixed into place, that certain people simply are the way they are, and that's that. This leads to essentialist value judgments of people based on their group identity. Cecil Rhodes viewed non-Anglo-Saxon populations as, quote, the most despicable specimens of human beings, unquote, fundamentally different from the English, who he believed were, quote, the finest race in the world, unquote. Rhodes expressed these warped sentiments in an 1877 document he called his Confession of Faith. His utopian vision stands on this foundation. Whether one believes that humans are totally malleable or totally fixed, he is making a claim about vast numbers of people he's never met. To do so is highly questionable. To fashion a world around such a faithful claim and then seek to implement it is utopian. Third, utopia is initiated deceptively and or violently. This follows from the previous two points. How do the masses come to accept a utopian vision if they do accept it? They must be adequately convinced that the theoretical worldview is plausible and actionable. This is where propaganda comes in. In the USSR, people were warned about the evils of capitalism, while simultaneously being reassured that their particular brand of socialism was producing the freest and most prosperous society imaginable. Of course, this wasn't true, but the deception was necessary to keep people on board. Similarly, Rhodes and the imperialists engaged in bombastic pro-British rhetoric to bolster the English ego while comparing other ethnicities to children and employing racialized science to prove these populations were biologically inferior. Unfortunately for utopians, propaganda doesn't always get the job done. Sometimes it is necessary to force people into submission. In the second point, I mentioned re-education camps and execution in the Soviet Union for when the standard diet of propaganda failed. Add to this list disappearance, arrest, torture, and slavery. 
In the case of the British Empire, force was applied externally to those lesser peoples whose resources were imagined to be owed to England. In both cases, the use of force against obstacles to the realization of the ideal world was seen as a foregone conclusion. It is true that some of history's smaller utopian experiments, for instance, the puritanical communities of early America, see chapter 4, and the isolated societies that followed them in the 19th century, did not begin with deception or force, but with hopeful naivete. The people who established such experimental communities genuinely shared common goals for a better society. This was possible because the numbers of people involved were comparatively low, and even then this homogeneity of vision only lasted for so long. These pockets of American utopias tended to very quickly break apart, succumbing to deception and force, if not altogether abandoned. For an example of how force was used in order to preserve one such community, do an internet search for Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. If a unified vision for social order can hardly be maintained by small groups of devotees, how are we to imagine that this sort of vision could be maintained by an entire nation or empire of people? The larger the target population of the utopian, the more deception and force will be required. Fourth, utopia is claimed to be so good that this deception and or force is justified and ennobled. The three preceding points directly imply this one. What could possibly justify the violence and dishonesty of the third point? Why, the promises of the first and the faith of the second, of course. To be a utopian is to believe that the ends justify the means. In pursuit of their idealistic ends, people will often permit, or even themselves commit, horrific atrocities against those they perceive to stand in their way. Thus, utopians can feed off of regular people's desires for an improved society to further their aims. In the Soviet Union, a great and free egalitarian republic was promised. To attain this republic, revolutionaries, who later became the government, circulated deceitful propaganda to turn people toward them and away from the opposition. Tens of millions of people were murdered based on their social class, this to level the playing field. Those who remained alive were left with a deranged and paranoid dictator. Yet, they were still assured that the utopia would be coming soon. Unknown millions more were arrested and forced to slave away in an icy wasteland. The entire population was under constant threat, and no one ever knew what little mannerism or idiosyncrasy of hers might label her as a traitor to the revolution. And yet the lying, the terror, the suffering, and the death was all deemed legitimate, necessary, in fact, because it was carried out in pursuit of the highest good. In the interests of furthering their utopian vision, Rhodes and the imperialists plundered resources, started colonial wars, and facilitated genocides. But don't worry, it was all in the name of bettering the world. In their day, these imperialists were lauded as heroes in Britain. It is interesting to note that some of the more brutal actions of these heroes were kept secret from the common folk back home. I wonder why. They stole, oppressed, and murdered, just like the Soviets, for a good cause. Fifth and finally, utopia is inherently and internally contradictory. This point is the culmination of all the others. 
Imagine the conceit of somebody who actually believes he has discovered exactly how society should operate. That implies that the utopian knows precisely how each and every individual should behave. This is not only conceited, it is delusional. No one individual or group can possibly conceive of all the variables and possibilities of something as dynamic as human existence. Claiming to have done so is an elementary aspect of utopianism. Equally preposterous is the notion that human nature can be brought wholly under the sway of a top-down social order. All utopian systems up till now have been devised and attempted by flawed human beings who claim to hold the secret to transcending reality. A simple question will reveal how absurd this is. Can a small group of imperfect individuals perfect the whole of humanity? And the answer, of course not. Perhaps most obvious of all is the contradiction of resorting to deception and violence in order to make the world a better place. The religion of utopianism seems to demand human sacrifice to the abstracted ideal, and yet, despite the myriad blood rites, perfection never seems to come. It's amazing that this still needs to be said, but oppression, censorship, murder, and theft in the name of the greater good doesn't actually benefit the greater good. This is because, if we're being honest, the property and well-being of those victims should be included in the analysis of the greater good. If the greater good refers to the well-being of a group of individuals, harming and oppressing individuals is a contradictory act. The Soviet Union imprisoned and slaughtered its own people for the greater good. The British Empire butchered and enslaved the people of Africa and Asia for the greater good. None of these people who were sacrificed to the glorious utopian ideal were left feeling great or good. Not only did neither society reach its goal, the Soviet Union collapsed in on itself and the British Empire, while still maintaining some sway, albeit in a new form, has long faded from its former glory. Unfortunately for the victims of both ideals, the breakdowns didn't come soon enough, for the utopians and their deluded supporters refused to see the truth. No good can come from such evil. Having finished beating the meaning of the word to death, we can now put all the points together into one tidy sentence and call it our working definition. Utopia is the inherently and internally contradictory belief that a theoretical vision of an ideal society, based on ideological assumptions about human nature, can justifiably be implemented by way of deception and or violence. It must be clarified that merely dreaming of idyllic communities is harmless and poetic. Furthermore, imagining what an ideal or better society might look like is not just harmless, it's useful. Doing so allows us to take stock of our values and is therefore a productive and creative intellectual exercise. This helps us set standards for ourselves and gives us goals to strive for. Given the above definition, it should be easy to see how this differs from utopianism. Groups of people working toward a shared vision for the future is a truly beautiful thing, provided it is implemented peacefully and voluntarily. This is not only the very basis of civil society, it is also the driver of progress. Utopia, on the other hand, is the lie that the deluded use to justify and absolve their misdeeds. Beware that nobody ever admits to being a utopian outright. 
A candidate of a utopian party would get nowhere, and the less said about such a party's support base, the better. Yet history is littered with idealistic promise after promise, plan after plan. With confidence and colorful slogans, people, not all but enough, can be convinced that a better world would be realized if only they surrender themselves and their property to an inspirational ruler or to a new promising system. They can be fooled into falling in love with a manufactured ideal and repudiate nature just long enough to be taken for everything they've got. It has happened before, over and over. Politics has largely been utopianism by another name. What follows are some examples of utopias, both merely theorized and actually attempted. The deep-seated propensity to seek the highest good, while nobly intended, has proven to be one of humankind's most dangerous and deadly weapons when misapplied or manipulated. This has been demonstrated over and over throughout history, in more instances than I could possibly fit in this book. Following our examinations of select utopian projects, I'll conclude this book by suggesting some solutions to this problem for the ages. Pointless is the book that shows the reader a world on fire, but leaves her without a bucket of water. We will explore alternatives to dependency on centralized systems, which I will contend is the lifeblood of utopianism, thereby sparking a conversation about actually improving our societies without having to put our faith in the false promises and murky premises of the utopians. The price paid for utopia, when not life itself, is freedom, and yet it is our freedom that can save us if we let it. Once again, the definition of utopia. The inherently and internally contradictory belief that a theoretical vision of an ideal society based on ideological assumptions about human nature can justifiably be implemented by way of deception and or violence. We are now ready to dive into the history of utopia, the story of nowhere. We will start by going back to the beginning, for it is in humankind's oldest tales and dimmest memories that the first utopias are to be found. All right, we'll close it out there. Again, if you want to find the rest of the audio book that you can continue on listening, it looks like it's only like three hours long, you can go ahead and follow up the link in to the story of Nowhere uh, in the show notes and then click on the uh, book and find the links to the audio book there. I'll make sure and put the link directly to the audio book in the show notes. That way you can just uh, find it easier that way. And it puts a little bit of the burden on you to go and do that, the audience member. Uh, but I do encourage the rest of that book. Well, we might reference it or read from it more here in the future on Freedoms Rising or tylerbloyer.com. And we're going to leave it there for today. Check us out at freedomsrising.live and tylerbloyer.com. And we'll be back here tomorrow, continuing on with the series of Falling Into the Movement Traps and Freedoms Rising Episode 23. You've been listening to Episode... Well, no, tomorrow will be 24. You've been listening today to Episode 23. We appreciate your time and attention out there, everyone, and have a good one. Thank you. <laughs>